Thank you, Sarah, for sharing uh, your story of God's grace and His goodness in uh, your life. Um, I want to throw a question out there. Maybe you can talk about it with the person sitting next to you, but have you ever had lunch with a celebrity? Like, ever had lunch with someone or coffee or dinner or spend more than five minutes with someone famous? You could just say the person's name next to you um, if there's been anyone like that in your life. I know that uh, kind of puts you on the spot, maybe hard for you to, uh, to, to say with just a moment's notice, but um, maybe you have. I, I, I don't think I have had a, uh, any time like that with anyone uh, that is that famous, but if you have and you've lived to tell about it, you've put it up on social media, you tell your friends about it, probably the question that everyone wants to know is, hey, what were they like? Like, what were they really like? I, we see them on TV, we, see them, we hear their songs, we see them on social media, but what are they really like? It's a question that everybody wants to know. And as you come in here today, if you're new, uh, I don't know if you've, you've been around church for a long time, but as you come in here, one of the questions that um, you've got to ask if you believe in God or if you think about God or if you have any inclination about God, one of the questions that you probably have been asking is, what is God like? Like, really, what is God like? I mean, we could speculate all you want. In one of our, our Harvest 201 class, uh, we had a time this uh, couple weeks back where people would just draw what they thought of when they thought of God. And so people would draw like, uh, you know, big old, you know, big things, or they would draw like orbs or things like that. They would draw light, in a, just like bright lights and, and things like that. In all of our minds, we have a picture of what we think God is like. Maybe you think God is like this elderly, grandfatherly figure who's just smiling up in heaven. Maybe you think God is an elderly, white-robed judge who's kind of weighing out um, all the good things and the bad things that you do, and uh, next to him, he's got a lightning bolt ready to throw down at somebody who's doing something wrong. I don't know what your view of God is, but if you believe in God, then it's a question that we need to ask. Who is God? What is he really like? Because that's one of the biggest questions in our mental map is, who is God? What is he actually like? In the Word of God, the Bible tells us many different attributes <clears throat> that define and that describe who God is. But even that, at times, can be a little bit confusing because on one hand, we see that God is a God of justice, and then on another hand, we see God is a God of mercy. Or we see God is a God of love, but God is also a God of, of anger. One of the best things that God did for us is he allowed the Word of God to become flesh and make his dwelling in this world to breathe the same air that we breathe, to be subject to the same things that you and I are subject to when he sent his son Jesus into the world. Jesus, who is fully man. So when you want to see what does it look like to be fully alive, to be the perfect human being, we look at Jesus. But Jesus is also fully God. So when you want to know what does it look like for God, what is God like? What does he look like? We look at Jesus and we see this is what God is like, fully God, fully man. And so when you look at Jesus, you see a picture of who God is. The way that God treats us is the same way that Jesus treated people when he walked on the earth. And what we've seen through the past five weeks, including today's sixth, is we've seen that Jesus is a friend, that God wants to be a friend to us, not just a friend who's the most draining friend that we have or an annoying friend, but he is the best friend that we could ever imagine. We've been talking about and looking at what that means in our lives and then what that means as a result of him being a friend to us. What we want to do today is I want to look at how Jesus befriended a person who is in a place of deep suffering. And oftentimes we see Jesus encountering people in suffering. We're going to look at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. We're going to see that um, Jesus' friendship is one that uh, 
I mean, we've been seeing it's an invaluable thing to us. But we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 5 where we left off two weeks ago. So last week, Pastor Josiah led us through uh, Jesus' encounter, the true story of how Jesus encountered a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Today, we're going to kind of um, go back to where we were a couple weeks ago. Jesus has gone across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side where there um, just this non-Christian pagan area filled with demonic activity. Jesus has healed a man who was demon-possessed. They kick him out of town, so he goes back to the other side, to the northern, western side of the Sea of Galilee, and people are waiting for him there. And this is what we're going to see in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to see Jesus encounter with a couple people, but we're going to focus on one of them, um, the second person that main person that is highlighted here. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. This is God's word. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, okay, this is back to the Jewish side, uh, northern, western side of the Sea of Galilee, a large crowd had gathered, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. This is the lady we're going to highlight today. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? <laughs> you see the people crowding against you, his disciple answered, and, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around, kept looking around, kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is God's word. So much that we see here, okay, so much that we see in this passage, so much more than maybe we might see on first glance. This is a Jewish lady living in uh, Israel at the time under the occupation of the Roman Empire. So if you could imagine a totem pole, okay, a totem pole of suffering, amongst the Israelites. Okay, at the top of the totem pole, this is the least amount of suffering. At the top of the totem pole was just Jewish men, right? Jewish men, they suffered because they were living under Roman oppression. They were slaves to Rome. So financially, uh, politically, militarily, they were oppressed. So here you have Jewish men. It was bad to be a Jewish person. It was hard to be a Jewish person living in Rome at the time. But underneath the men, lower on the totem pole were women, Jewish women living in Israel. Because not only were they under the same kind of oppression and slavery, but women in general in both Roman culture and in Jewish culture were seen as second-class citizens. 
as a lower tier than men. They were not treated well. If you were married, if you were a married woman, you could be divorced at any time. By your husband's volition, you could never initiate your own divorce. Right? That's the way it was. Their testimonies were not valid. They were seen as unreliable. It was very difficult to be a woman living in Roman times as a Jewish person. If you lost your husband, then there was no social security, no welfare program for you. You were forced out onto the streets to make a living whatever way that you could. The lady that we meet here is on the bottom of this totem pole, much like some of the other folks that we've encountered through this series. Not only was she Jewish, not only was she a woman, but she'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And in this place of desperation, she's not only suffered, it says in verse 26, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Literally, the Greek word mastigos means she suffered. Literally, the picture that you get is a woman who was beaten and she was whipped. And every time she got up, she was beaten again and she was whipped again. She would get up and she would get beaten and she would get whipped again. Again and again, she got up and she was beaten down. She got up and she was beaten down. This was the life of the suffering, bleeding woman. I don't know if any of you feel like this as you come in here today. You feel like every time something good happens, you get beat up. You get beat back down. You get pressed back down. Every time something good seems to happen, it seems like that was actually good news meant for somebody else. It was a wrong memo. It wasn't meant for you. I don't know if any of you feel like life has beaten you up, but this lady for the better part of 12 years, for all of the past 12 years, has felt like that. This has been a pandemic in her life repeated over and over and over again. She has suffered a great deal. And yet in one encounter with Jesus, everything about her life is changed forever. What do we see? Okay, there are three things that I want to help us to see here. The first thing is this. You will often encounter Jesus okay, when you're desperate. Very simple thought. You will often encounter Jesus when you're desperate. And this lady was in the truest sense of the word. She was pretty desperate. She'd been bleeding for 12 years. I don't know what it's like to bleed for 12 years. I don't think you know what it's like to bleed for 12 years, but if I bled for 12 minutes, that would be an extremely painful 12-minute ordeal. But for her, this is 12 years, long years. This was a woman's issue, most likely bleeding from the uterus. Something was happening, but she was bleeding. It was, she was anemic. She was weak. She was tired all the time. She had lost strength. Physically, she feels in her body the effects of 12 years of bleeding uncontrollably. This is who she was. She is suffering deeply. Not only that, but at a spiritual, social level, you understand this also. We've, we've been through social distancing. You know what it's like, especially in the early parts of this pandemic when we couldn't go outside, you couldn't do anything, you had to be six feet away from people. This was far worse. For 12 years, Leviticus 12, Leviticus 15, both of them say that if a woman has been bleeding for seven days, okay, she's been bleeding for seven days, then she is spiritually, ceremonially unclean. That means she cannot be with anybody. Anybody that she comes in contact with becomes unclean as well. She can have no relations with her husband. She cannot touch her children if she has any. This is for seven days. Here she is for 12 long years of bleeding. That means for 12 years, she's apart from any kind of human connection, even animal connection. If she touched an animal, they would become unclean as well. She's completely isolated. It's one thing for you to suffer, right? Suffering itself is bad. 
It's bad when you have to suffer over and over and over and over again, like multiple things of suffering. It's another thing to suffer for 12 years consecutively. It's another thing to suffer for 12 years consecutively all by yourself. And this is the condition that this lady finds herself in. 12 years of isolation. We know how deeply we need connection. I mean, you, we could go on and on about all the medical studies. I, I <clears throat> came across one this week that said um, surveys were done, okay? Just different kinds of illnesses, different kinds of sicknesses. What is the rate of healing, right? What is the variables? They said if a person has deep relational connections, depending on the disease, they are twice as likely to be healed from that illness, up to between two times and five times more likely to be healed from that illness than if that person was suffering the exact same illness, the exact same category, without having human interaction. There's a power in connection. We need human connection with each other. We've, we've, we've experienced that through COVID-19. Even at this, at this level, I, I read this, this man had a, a cat and a dog. He had a couple pets. He had a cat and a dog. And for 10 years, the cat and the dog lived together and they fought every day, right? Every day, the cat and the dog fought each other. After 10 years, the dog didn't kill her, but the cat just died. It got to that point in, in, in its life where the cat dies. Cat died. The next day, the dog woke up looking for the cat to play with, to fight with, whatever it was, realized that the cat's not there, and that day the dog didn't eat its food. The next day, the dog woke up looking for the cat again, didn't find it, refused to eat, refused to eat, refused to eat. Six weeks later, six weeks later, the dog died. Because dogs understand, too, that we're made for connection. We need connection, even if it's with a cat. For a dog, we were made for that kind of connection. And so here's this woman. For 12 years, she's got no connection, no interaction with anyone except the doctors that she's going to see with, but all of them are quacks also, and they only treat her worse. So she would go to the doctor. Okay, look at what, look at what Mark says. Very interesting. Verse 26. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. So she had a lot of doctors taking care of her, but she suffered because of them spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So she goes to a doctor, thinking that the doctor can heal her bleeding condition, only to realize that he can't do anything, just charges a lot of money. She goes home, sells everything else that she's got. She's got more money. She goes to another doctor and only gets worse and worse and worse to the point where she's liquidated everything. She's got no money left. And she's worse off in this 12-year mark than she was at year one. What do you do when everything that you've put your hope into fails to give you the comfort that you need? What do you do when everything that you've put your hope into fails you? This is where she's at. Doctor after doctor after doctor and her hope of ever being better, ever being clean, went dry with the last dollar she gave to the last doctor. I don't know if you've ever been to that kind of place of desperation before. What do you do when you're desperate, but you have no hope? Desperation without hope is despair. You're desperate, but there's nothing to latch on to. It's going to always lead to despair. I don't know if any of you remember a show back in the, well, it wasn't back in the day, maybe like 10, 12 years ago called The American Inventor. Anyone remember American Inventor? This came out 
uh, I think it was like right around the time. It's a similar idea of Shark Tank, but it's just for American wannabe inventors. And so 10 years ago, 12 years ago, there was a guy named Mark Griffin. Mark Griffin went on American Inventor, hoping that one of these four people would invest into his idea. His idea was a game called Bullet Ball. I don't know if any of you have heard the game Bullet Ball. Probably not, unless you've seen this particular clip. It's very tragic, actually. His dream is that Bullet Ball is going to become a hit. Basically, it's this, this round, circular game board and a ball. That's it. And you play with your forearms, and you hit that ball trying to get it past the other guy's forearms. Right? That's how you play. So obviously, he, 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 no one's ever played this game. No, one's ever, no one knows what this game is. So he says, hey, can one of you guys come and play with me? And so one of the guys comes down, he plays with them, and obviously, Mark is destroying them because they've never played the game. He's like, my point, my point, my point. He's like dominating them. He's like, listen, here's my, just like all other great games, like basketball, like soccer, like ping pong, bullet ball will one day become the next great Olympic sport. That's what he says. And the people are looking at him with very worried looks on their face, thinking, you can't be serious. So they ask him his backstory. He said, 26 years ago, my wife and I were playing by the fireplace and throwing a ball of yarn back and forth. And I was like, I need to turn this into a game. And so for the next 26 years, he went on this venture to market bullet ball. He said, I sold everything I've got. I sold my house. I traded in my Saab for an old Volvo station wagon with 300,000 miles on it. I quit my job. I sold everything. I sold my wife's engagement ring, packed all we had into a station wagon, and we're here because of bullet ball. The people are very concerned. They're like, my goodness, Mark, I just feel like you're reliving a great moment in your life 26 years ago. This is not, this is not it. And I'm not investing in you. They're like, so you sold that, you've got no house, what do you have? And tragically, he says, I have bullet ball. They're like, Mark, you've lost everything. You've lost everything. Don't lose your mind. This is not going to happen. He's like, you don't understand. You don't understand. This is all I have. This is all I have. What happens when all you have isn't going to get you to where you need to go? When everything that you've tried ends up in dead ends. This is, this is her. This is her story. Mark understands what this lady was feeling because desperation without hope is despair. Here she is. She's given everything. But instead of getting better, she gets worse. And then she hears that there's a man named Jesus coming around. She hears of another physician that she said, well, well he touched a leper an unclean leper, and he was made well. She hears of another physician who touches people who are untouchable. Maybe she could find healing in his hands. She hears of a physician who doesn't charge any money, whose singular desire is to alleviate and relieve the suffering of people in this broken, sin-stained world, and she thinks maybe there's a chance. Because you see, what Jesus loves to do is that he often meets us in our desperation. 
Some of you are desperate today and you know that you're desperate because everything that you've gone to has led to emptiness. Even the thing that you're putting your hope in right now, you know in your heart of hearts, you know in the deepest place of your being that is not satisfying your longings, the longings of your heart. But you're still planning to go back to it because hoping against hope that maybe this will do it this time. Jesus wants to meet you in that place of desperation because that's what he often does. You see it in the life of a leper. You see it in the life of Zacchaeus who had no hope but to shame himself in order to climb a tree to see the person who could potentially give him hope. Some of you know this because you've been walking with Jesus a long time. You've been straying for him for some time, but you're at a point of desperation and he's calling you because he knows that you know that when you're desperate, that's when Jesus often longs to meet with you and when you often encounter him is in your place of desperation. People say, hey, you know what? I don't want to become a Christian because Christianity is a crutch. And they would be absolutely right because we are broken, broken by sin. See, we don't presume to be perfect people living in a perfect world where nobody gets hurt because other people are perfect also. We are broken people living in a broken world who've been broken by our own sin, broken by the sin of other people against us, and broken by a fallen world. Absolutely, we need a crutch. That's why it's when we hear so many testimonies when people come to the end of the line, the end of the rope, to the deepest place of desperation. In desperation, I call to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul and met me in that place. That's what Jesus does. He often meets us in a place of desperation because we don't think we're desperate until we feel that sense of desperation. And here's a lady who's been bleeding for 12 years, and she knows that there's no hope. She's lost everything. She's given it all for the sake of healing, and she's found that every well she's drunk from has ended up leaving her thirsty. So what do you do? First thing that we see for some of us, some of us are in this place. Like we know that we're desperate, but we don't want to go to Jesus. Can I tell you that Jesus often encounters you, often encounters me, often wants to meet us in our place of desperation. So first thing, the second thing that we see, second thing that we see is that you are never a bother or a burden to Jesus. Do you ever feel like you're bothering Jesus? I mean, Jesus, you've got a world to run. You've got galaxies and universes and all these things, billions and billions of people. I don't want to bother Jesus with that little insignificant thing. Well, here's this lady, okay? Do you remember what's been happening? Jesus has been doing a whirlwind ministry. He's just tired. Everyone is after him. He gets on a boat thinking it's going to be a a, a sweet, just cruise across to the other side of the lake. Furious storm comes up. Jesus stills the storm. As soon as he gets out, he's met by not people with a Walmart shirt saying, how can I help you? But he's met by the greeting ministry of the garrisons. It's a demon-possessed man. He's got like hundreds of demons in him. This demon-possessed man says, you're not welcome here. He cast the demons out into pigs. The country people, the, the people in the town hear about it. They say, Jesus, please leave us. He gets right back on that boat. He's still tired. He goes back to the other side. Crowds of people are coming around him. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. It's like he's a, he's a big celebrity in town. And a royal official comes running up to him, and he says, Jesus, my daughter's dying. 
She's on her last breath. I need you to come and help me. So Jesus says, let's go. Okay, we got to go. And as he's going, crowds of people are pressing around him. He's got an urgent situation where he's got to get to the daughter before she dies. In the midst of that place, here comes this lady, and she reckons, Jesus is busy. He's got a dying girl who's probably more important than me to get to. She's only 12 years old. I've been in this situation for 12 years. As long as she's been alive, I've been in this situation. He can, maybe he can come back to me, but, but she's dying. He's got to hurry. So she reasons, if all I do, if I, just, if I just touch his cloak, if I just touch his cloak, that'll be enough. I'll be healed, and, and then I can go, and he could just go, and he won't even notice it. There's only one problem. Well, there's a few problems here. Number one, Jewish women would never touch a Jewish man in public, even if it's her own husband. She wouldn't do that. It's immodest. It's unbecoming <coughs> of a woman in that society. She couldn't touch Jesus, no way. You wouldn't even do that to your husband. The second thing is she's not even supposed to be out in public. Twelve years she's bleeding. Twelve years she's afflicted. Twelve years she's unclean. Twelve years she needs to be socially distant. No way that she's supposed to be in the crowd of people. She shouldn't be there. She's got a lot of strikes against her. <coughs> but she reasons, if I just go and touch him, that's all I need to do. When she heard about Jesus, verse 27, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, that's all I need, I'll be healed. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So she's got what she came looking for. No more bleeding. I'm healed. I'm good. I'm good to go. I'm going to sneak out of the crowd then and go home to rejoice in my healing. Verse 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Disciples answered, Luke says, this is Peter. Peter's like, you see the people crowding against you, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Literally, it says Jesus looked, and he looked, and he looked, and he looked, and he kept on looking, and he kept on looking. He kept, he's not going to give up until he finds the person who did it. Here's Jesus on the way to this urgent mission to heal this dying girl of her illness. She touches him. She's got what she needs, but he stops. In the midst of that, and you'll read later on, Jairus's, the official's buddies come, and they're like, hey, don't worry, don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter died, by the way. So this girl is going to die. Jesus will raise her from the dead, but... He lets her die, and so all the messengers are coming like, hey, sorry, you took too long. He's dead. She's dead. Jesus lets a girl die to stop for a woman who's already got the healing that she came looking for. Why? Who touched my clothes, Jesus says. And the first thought in her mind is, dang it, I didn't want to bother Jesus. So she, she's trying to sneak out. But Jesus keeps on looking for her. 
And he keeps on looking for, where are you? Who did it? He knows who did it. Who touched my clothes? Why does he ask that question? She thinks she's bothered Jesus, but really what she's done, she's got Jesus' attention. Who did this? The question we often hear in our house, on the lips of my wife Olivia, who did this? (laughs) There's water all over the floor by the refrigerator. Who did this? (laughs) Probably one of the kids, I don't know. Who left the lights on in the bathroom? Who did this? Why is there toothpaste all over the sink? Who did this? Why is the toilet seat up? Why are there socks on the floor? Who did this? It's a question that we often ask, and it usually means that somebody's in trouble. So when Jesus says, who did this? Who touched me? The lady's thinking, dang it, I'm in trouble now. I've bothered Jesus. But little does she realize that she's not bothering Jesus. In fact, the reason he stops is not because she's a bother, but because she's a blessing. What happened? Can I tell you something? In the midst of an urgent need to take care of a girl who's on her deathbed, Jesus stops and he looks at that woman and he says, you will never be a burden to me. You can never be a bother to me. Do you understand that? In the midst of the crowd, Jesus stops and he locks his gaze upon this one person that he wants to have an encounter with because to Jesus, it's not enough that she gets a healing. He wants her to encounter the healer because it's so much more important than that. Do you ever think that I'm bothering Jesus by constantly asking him, for the same thing over and over and over again. This passage tells us that you can't bother Jesus. You can't bore Jesus. You can't burden Jesus. He stops, and in the midst of all these people, they're like, dude, Jesus, like everyone is bumping up against you. How can you even ask that? He stops and he locks his gaze upon this one lady that nobody has looked at, nobody has touched, nobody has seen, anonymous, nameless, faceless person in the crowd. uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a, group of, uh, a group of folks were hanging out, and there were some concerned gentlemen of our church who have a friend within their circle. Their friend is still single, and their deepest desire is that their single friend would get married. And so they're talking up their friend, talking about how great a guy he is. He loves God. He's committed to the church. He serves the church. He's nice. He's smart. He's funny. And then as the clincher, they said, and have you ever talked with him? Like when you talk with him... He looks at you and he gives you his full attention as if you're the only person in the room. They're like, yeah, he is going to make one lucky lady very happy. Jesus, amidst the crowds of people who are, Jesus, go, 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 we got to go, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. He makes one blessed lady very happy because he stops for her. Sometimes we think Jesus is too busy fixing the situation in that country or fixing the situation in that state or bringing healing to this person that I couldn't possibly come to Jesus with the fact that my dog just passed away or the fact that I've got a a finger that hurts. I don't think I could go to, I just want to go to, I can't bring my, I can't, definitely can't bring that job interview. It's like my 500th job interview. It's not a big deal to him. I I definitely can't talk to God about that test. 
I need to bring, I'll, I'll just wait until I can accumulate the big stuff and then I'll bring the big stuff to him. Did it ever occur to you that the biggest stuff that you bring to Jesus is not really that big to him? That the situation that you think is patently impossible to you is just as simple to him as the simplest situation that you might think of in your life. Nothing that you bring to Jesus is insignificant for him. He stops. He says, you can't bother me. You're not a burden to me. Jesus stops. For her, Jesus stops for you. But why? Why did he do that? Here's the last thing that we see. The last thing that we see is that when you step out from the crowds, you receive all that Jesus has for you. Okay, when you step out from the crowd, that's when you can receive all that Jesus has for you. Jesus says, who touched my clothes? All these people, and yet you ask that, verse 32. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And the woman said, knowing what had, uh, had happened, came and fell at Jesus' feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. I was bleeding for 12 years. I was scared. All these doctors messed me up. I came and I touched you. He, she tells all that stuff. Verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Why did Jesus want to know who touched him? She'd already received her healing. Because Jesus had so much more that he wanted to give to her. She needed to come out from the crowds again. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where uh, you're flying somewhere and they say, hey, ladies and gentlemen, on United Flight 95, whatever it is, our flight is completely booked. We're looking for a few volunteers to give up their seats. In exchange, we'll give them a $150 voucher on any United flight. You're like, oh, my gosh, $150, that's great. Like, I could go somewhere with that. We're looking for eight people, eight people to volunteer to do this. You're like, hey, let, let's do it to your traveling companion. Let's do it. If you walk up there, you're like, hey, I, I'd like to be the, am I, am I one of the first date? You're, Absolutely, $150, here you go. You get it, you're like, yes, yeah, so excited as you try to rebook your flight. You hear the announcement. Say, ladies and gentlemen, we're still looking for six volunteers. Six volunteers to get us a completely sold flight, United Flight 95 back home to Orlando, Florida. Completely full, full flight. We're upping the ante. We'll give you $500. Now, $500. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I, just, I should have waited. And then your, your buddies are with you. They're like, ah, ha, 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 and they're laughing at you. They get their $500 voucher. Right, ladies and gentlemen, we're still uh, experiencing a very full flight. We've got two, we're looking for just two volunteers. We give $1,000, $1,000 vouchers. Like, oh my gosh, if I just waited. Jesus had so much more that he wanted to give to this lady than just a mere healing. When he says daughter, this is... There's no one else in the Gospels that Jesus ever uses this language to speak of. He, the only person he's ever called daughter, literally what Tim Keller says is, he, he, what Jesus is saying is, he's saying sweetheart. He's saying sweetheart. She probably hadn't, hadn't heard that language in at least 12 years if she's ever heard that before. Jesus, you see, to a woman who is anonymous, who is nameless, who is faceless, no one knows who she is, no one's seen her for 12 years except doctors, he jumps over, hey, uh, Mrs. 
whatever your last name is, uh, Mrs. whatever, you're healed. Go in faith. No, he doesn't say that. He skips over the pleasantries. He skips over the first name basis. Hey, Beatrice, you're healed. And he goes straight into the realm of nicknames. Jesus is saying, I've known you a lot longer than you know. I know you a lot deeper than you could ever believe. He jumps over all of that stuff, doesn't even go to first name basis. He goes straight to a name that you would never use. You would never call someone this if you're meeting them for the first time. It's a sweetheart with tenderness, with affection. Do you see, her physical brokenness has been healed with the touch. But in calling her daughter, he's locking her in to a community and her social isolation is being healed. All of that brokenness, those emotional wounds are being cleansed and being washed over. He said, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. When he says peace, he's using the word, you know, it's shalom, which means a complete and utter sense of wholeness in every part of your being, not just a peace between you and your enemies, not just a peace between you and God, but a peace within yourself, an inner peace, not just that existential peace, not an inner peace, an external peace, but a complete and total peace over your body, Jesus is pronouncing complete and utter blessing over all of her. You see, she came for a physical healing and she got it. Jesus was restoring wholeness to every part of who she is. He says, go into the shalom of God and be freed from your suffering. Not just your bleeding, not just your pain, but from every part of who you are. That's what Jesus is doing when he says that. That's why he needed to call her out. Because he needed her to understand, listen, the healing was not in the garment. The healing was in her faith. Your faith has healed you, Jesus says. Don't get it twisted because otherwise you might go and tell all of your other friends, if you just touch Jesus, you'll be healed. But Jesus is making clear it wasn't that. It wasn't that. It wasn't the garment that healed. Okay? He says your faith has healed you. When Jesus says your faith has healed you, literally what Jesus is saying is your faith has saved you. Why does he he say that? Because when she touched Jesus' cloak, right? She didn't touch his body. She touched just his cloak. Power went out from him. It's like whoosh. All this power goes out from Jesus. He feels it. And so even though he might not have felt the tug on his cloak, he felt power go out from her, him. He knew something happened And he knew that that could only be unleashed, unlocked, not by a touch of a garment, but by a touch of faith. He knew that she had faith because of something that happened in this encounter. What was it? Well, there's something particular that this lady did when she grabbed the hold of Jesus. Two things that we see. It says literally when Jesus says, okay, who touched my clothes? Literally, he says, who grabbed my clothes? So there's a grabbing of it. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing, okay, the second thing that we see when she says, came up behind in the crowd and touched his cloak. Okay. Literally, what it means is he t- she touched the corner of his cloak. And this is why Jesus understood that what she's doing is an act of faith, unlike anything that he had seen in his time. What was she doing? Why did he say your faith has saved you? Because when a Jewish man would go to pray, they would wear a prayer shawl over them, a cloak, as Mark describes it, a cloak. And on that cloak, Leviticus says, on the four corners of that cloak, you would hang tassels, okay? On the corner, 
Okay, the corner of the cloak is called the kanaf in Hebrew. Okay, on the kanaf, there was a tassel called the tzitzit. <laughs> called the tzitzit, and on that tzitzit, on that tassel, you were to hang that on the corner of your cloak in order that you would be reminded of the commands of God. Whenever you put on your prayer shawl, you would see the tassels, and you would remind yourself that I'm a child of God, I'm a, I belong to God. And so here's Jesus, okay? Whenever Jesus, whenever any male would put on their cloak and they lifted up their arms, it would look as if they've got wings, like they're flying. And so on the corner of the wings, on the kanaf of the wings, there was a tassel. On the kanaf, there was a tzitzi that made it look like Jesus had wings. And so you see that the final prophet of the Old Testament was a man named Malachi. Malachi prophesied, and when he spoke about the coming of the Messiah, he said of the Messiah, the sun will rise with healing in his wings. And so when she comes to Jesus. Literally, when she touches the cloak, it says she touched the corner, the tassel, the kanaf, the tzitzi. When she touched that, Jesus felt the power go out from her. What is he saying? In her statement of faith that was coming from the grasping of the tassel, it wasn't just a touch of the garment. It was a grasping of the tzitzi, of the tassel on the kanaf. It was a grasping of that Jesus understood because power went out from her because he knew that she had faith. What she was saying with that grasp is not just can this man heal my bleeding. What she was saying is this is the promised Messiah. This is the one that Malachi talked about. Not only is there healing in his wings, but he is the Messiah that had been prophesied. So she realizes that when Jesus is looking for her, she knows that she's got to come because she knows that Messiah has so much more for her than just a physical healing. And so she steps out from the crowd and she receives everything that Jesus has for her. You see, in order for you to get everything that Jesus promises to you, you've got to step out from the crowd. This is what friends of Jesus do. You don't find this kind of healing, this kind of experience of Jesus through an incidental touch while you're in the midst of a crowd. You don't experience this kind of freedom by an accidental grasping at something that you just happen to run into. There's a willful desire to come out of the crowd and to say, you know what, here I am. Here I am. Here I am in all of my brokenness. Here I am in all of my shame. But I cannot stay in the crowds anymore, Jesus, if you've done this. If just one touch of your garment brings healing to me, then how much more of your love is for me than I'm tasting, Lord? And she said, I'm coming out to receive all that you have for me, Jesus. You see, it was her blood that made her unclean. And the craziest thing about it is that in encountering one who is clean, typically this is what happens. That's why the Jewish laws were enacted. When an unclean person meets a clean person, it's not that the unclean person gets clean. The clean people get unclean. You understand this, right? If I'm sick with germs and you're all healthy, you keep me away from you. I don't say, I've got to get with you guys so that your health could rub off onto me. It doesn't work that way. It's always the unclean makes the clean unclean. The sick makes the healthy unhealthy. It's not that the healthy people make the sick healthy. My kid is sick. Let's send them to school because healthy people are there. They're going to get well. No, it doesn't work that way. She understood that she was unclean 
but somehow in touching one who is utterly perfectly clean, she could be made clean without him being made unclean. That's the crazy thing. Yeah, it was her blood that made her unclean. But Jesus also knew a thing or two about blood also. He knew that the blood that flows through every human being is dirty and stained with sin, and there is no hope for us. We are in that desperate place. But when we come to Jesus, who took the uncleanness of our sin upon himself, and he shed his blood for us, though her blood made her unclean, his blood made her clean. And that's what he offers to you, and that's what he offers to me. He offers a friendship unlike anything else. Your, your purification is just a first step in that. In order to experience more of Jesus, you've got to step out from the crowd. You've got to take a step. You can't keep your feet firmly planted in the midst of the anonymity of the crowd. You've got to come out and say, Jesus, I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. A few weeks ago, I was at a Bridgewater Middle School um, where my daughter Manny goes and with a couple other students. We were there for one of their Christian clubs and parents were supposed to come and get information that day. And as we were there, they had a raffle. We all got tickets. And I said to the girls, I said, listen, I'm going to win this thing. I got a good feeling. I'm going to win this raffle. I like to win raffles and I often win raffles. I think I'm going to win. And so with each number that was called, if you have that number, you're supposed to call out that number. It said six, six, five, five, eight, eight. Two, two, four, four. It's the last number. I got it, I win. One. I said, one, I got it. Yay, I win. I win a free T-shirt. They're like, all right. A lot of times they'll throw the T-shirt to you. You got to come up here. I don't want to go up there. I don't want to go up there. I'm comfortable here sitting in the crowds with the rest of the people, with the rest of our church girls. And I don't want to get out there. You got to go up here. You got to dance up here. I was like, oh, but if I want the shirt, I got to do it. So I walked up there did a silly little thing as the music was playing. I got my shirt and I went back to my seat because the only way, the only way that I could get what they had for me was if I left the crowds by faith and stepped out in order to receive what was my promised inheritance. Guys, Jesus has so much more, so much more for you, so much more for us than what we're probably tasting right now. Says it's good. We're in the midst of the crowds like this. This is good. You can get your worship on. But what if Jesus said, I've got so much more. Don't just take the 150 and leave. I've got $1,000 and so many more vouchers for you. I've got so much more. Will you meet me? Meet me tomorrow morning. Come out from the crowds. Meet me tomorrow morning. Be a friend of Jesus. Meet me on Tuesday. Meet me on Wednesday. Meet me every day. So much more. Just one touch of his garment could heal a bleeding woman. He's got so much more for us. Let's pray together. Let's pray for a minute right now. Some of you are in a place of desperation that everything that you've done hasn't been working out very well for you. And Jesus says, listen, I want to meet you. That's what you are prime ground for me to walk into your heart. You're so ready for me to come to you and what I would do, what I would do, I would amaze you. If you would realize that I love to meet people in their desperation. Would you come to Jesus? Because you know, guys, let's be honest. The things that we've been doing, it hasn't been working out very well for us. Those places we've gone to meet people, those things that we've done, is it worth it? Is the hangover worth it the next morning? Is it worth it the feelings of guilt and distance from your community? Is it worth it? How's that working? It's not working out. In our desperation. 
Jesus wants to meet us as a friend, as a father, because all his life, all your life, he's been faithful to you and to me. Let's come in desperation to Jesus. Maybe others of you, God's calling you to come out from the crowds. You've been living a life of public Christianity, but haven't had much private devotion to him. Public passion, but not much personal devotion. What does it look like for us to spend time with Jesus as a friend this week? Let's spend a few moments right now praying to the Lord God. He offers his friendship to us today. He makes us clean, but he has so much more than that. He wants to restore, to heal, to free. He does that as we step out from the crowds. Let's pray for 30 seconds to a minute like that. Just honestly praying to your friend Jesus. You're not bothering him. You're never a burden to him. He loves you wants to be with you. Let's pray for a few moments and then I'll pray for us and then we'll close our service in a song of devotion. Father, we thank you for your grace in sending your son, Jesus, not only to be the lamb who is worthy to be slain, but to be the friend that we all need, the savior that we desperately need. Father, help us to be the friend to Jesus, the kind of friend that he is to us, that we would be an awesome friend, a friend who stops Jesus, a friend who moves Jesus' heart, a friend whose faith brings a joy and delight to our Savior, to our friend Jesus. So we sing this song. It's a song that this woman could have sung. Known you as a father, known you as a friend when you call me daughter. This is her story, but it's also ours as well if we know you, Jesus. So Lord, help us to sing it with all of our hearts. A song of worship, of trust, of commitment to you. Thank you for loving us. It's because of your love for us that we could love you in return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.